It's been over a year now since In The Key of Q launched. In our archive, you can find over 50 interviews of queer musicians from around the world and hear their music from rap Unaware of my proclivities to self-sabotage to country soul and rock. These episodes are available on the main feed. You can access them via the website at inthekeyofq.com or wherever you normally listen to podcasts. This episode contains content that some listeners may find distressing. Treating uh, sexuality as something that you kind of carry along with you that's undesirable, that you're trying to detach from, um, just only ever seemed to produce really rotten fruit in my life. Hello, this is Dan Hall. I love popular music and have spent most of my life translating heteronormative content into my gay experience. But I think it's time I stopped translating. And so in this podcast, I'm speaking with musicians from around the world who mirror and inspire my queer journey. Welcome to In the Key of Q. Blake Mundell is a bodywork specialist at America's National Football League, the NFL. And between matches, he produces music ranging from folk to pop under the moniker of Courier. In this episode, he tells us of a highly personal journey through religion and shame that brings him and his music to us today. Blake, it's great to welcome you. Thank you, Dan. It's good to be here. Goodbye. Hope I'll see you again on the colder side of December. On the lonely side of forever, pray the frost don't last so long. I know so many people who would identify as queer Christians. Um, So even though I wouldn't call that necessarily my journey today, um, I also want to recognize that there are so many people for whom their faith is integral to who they are just as much as um, their sexuality. And throughout my teenage years, I would spend, gosh, every night praying, what's wrong with me, please. I I, I would feel like I wasn't actually quote unquote saved yet. That's kind of the, the terminology that, you know, we would use and um, that Jesus hadn't actually come into my heart yet. Um, and so I would, every night I would pray, you know, please let it take this time, you know, please actually like save me tonight. Um, there are so many uh, American evangelicals that want to say you cannot be queer and you can't be Christian at the same time, that you can't square that circle. Hearing those messages was something I absolutely internalized. So for most of my 20s, it did feel like, you know, I had to choose between either one or the other. So which side was winning and what effect did that have on you? So a lot of times what we hear in American churches is this idea that we can't trust our experiences or we can't trust our feelings, right? That um, there's something about the desires that we feel or the emotions that come up that are inherently wrong or sinful or even poisonous to us. And so I learned to ignore those and then allow others to interpret my emotions for me. And... um, That was just a very quick way to launch myself into depression. Was every good thing made to suffer? I miss you like I miss the summer, but even that comes round once a year. 
So you're a young closeted man in your early 20s. Uh, you're not feeling comfortable with your own homosexuality and, and you're in a religious environment with, with a lot of faith yourself. How, how did that manifest itself? I actually voluntarily enrolled in a, in a kind of an offshoot conversion therapy program. They promise you that you would either experience um, either a reduction in your same-sex attractions. Um, I use air quotes there around those. Um, or that they would reverse and that you would experience, um, quote-unquote, holy or biblical desires for uh, members of the opposite gender. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, different programs kind of temper that differently. Some will say, oh, we're just going to teach you how to live a celibate life um, and deal with your sinful desires as as best you can. Um, it, it just sounds overwhelmingly toxic. Treating uh, sexuality as something that you kind of carry along with you that's undesirable, that you're trying to detach from. Um, just only ever seemed to produce really rotten fruit in my life. I've probably got very outdated uh, views of what conversion therapy is, Blake. I, I have a kind of picture of you like like Alex in a Clockwork Orange, you know, with your <laughs> eyes prized open, being forced to watch gay porn constantly in electrodes yeah. tied to your walls, <laughs> electrocuting, trying to electrocute the shame out of you. No, uh, well, no, it's not. Um, a lot of what they did was they would like blame my parents for not raising me right and kind of try to distance me from my parents. Um, so it, I, I would say that it was still torture in the way that you would you would think of torture, but it more psychological. And that said, there <laughs> there were some like trade secrets that would kind of like circulate. Uh, this pastor, he said, um, hey, I, I don't tell everyone this. Um, he was like, but. Um, something that's worked for me is, uh, you know, when you're masturbating, when you're when you're looking at porn, um, you just go until you're about to climax. And then right when you climax, you switch it to straight porn really quick. And he's like, that will rewire your brain to <laughs> want that instead of the gay porn that you've been watching. Yeah, because because, of course, what everyone wants to do just before they come is start opening browser windows. You know, play with trousers, not with browsers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it's like, did you, did you forget that there's also a man involved in straight porn as well? So, you know, you can just kind of block out the rest. Yeah, absolutely. Exactly. You know, you're just going to load up the male-female grouping and you're just going to look at the pecs. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, honestly, the the surprising part about that for me was porn was a big no-no and, and masturbation as well. It's like, we, we don't do that. We don't talk about it. So even the, the fact that he was talking to me about the reality that he was like, yeah, like when you masturbate as if it was something that he um, was almost encouraging me to do. So you can't watch porn and you can't masturbate. I think for most of the listeners on this, that's kind of what most people spend their entire twenties doing. <laughs> yeah. I, I can't think what I would have done with my twenties if I wasn't doing those. Maybe, yeah. maybe I would have read the Bible. That uh, that sounds a lot more fun than reading a Bible, in my opinion. <laughs> would you say that all of your internal anti-gay sentiment was purely down to religion? Because my gender presentation has usually kind of matched up with people's expectations for me. Um, and because I, I've always loved sports and I've always loved, um, 
you know, doing a lot of things that quote unquote, like manly men like doing, um, I had this image of, to, I guess I had this image to maintain that I didn't want to be interrupted by, um, coming out or telling somebody that I was, um, gay or queer. And so, uh, I, yeah, I didn't tell anyone about that until I was 22. And even then I used very veiled language. You know, I would, I would say I'm, I have same sex attractions or, um, I would try to skirt around, uh, any mention of like, a of identity language, like I am gay or I am queer. I would say I experience same sex attraction or I have these desires, um, that I want to get rid of. I do believe that words are a bit like magic that they do have a way to, uh, bring things to life that weren't alive before, or to bring things into, to existence that, that didn't exist before. So Blake, you're in the church environment. You've emerged out of conversion therapy. I'm guessing feeling like your same-sex attractions are under control. What happened next? Uh, I was really good friends with our pastor, and he was really pushing me to uh, get married to a woman. And um, his uh, wife's best friend was kind of who he was trying to set me up with. And so we ended up getting married. and. Um, and when that didn't work, um, I think they just didn't know what to do with me. Um, I reached a point, um, in the fall of 2018 where I made it, uh, made an attempt at my own life and, um, kind of sent, a a letter, I guess you'd call it a suicide letter out to my pastor, just saying, I've tried everything. This is not working. Dozen black candles were lit and laid out in the shape of a star on the floor. Through smoke and mirrors, we'd search our reflections, hoping we'd find something there to live for or to die for. That letter got circulated among the church, and they kind of used it to um, discipline me. Um, and so it was, sorry to interrupt you. You sent a suicide letter, a confidential suicide letter to your pastor who then saw it fit to pass around. <laughs> Is that standard behavior from them? Yeah, I would say, um, I would say, I, I, I can't say this for sure, but I would, I would imagine. Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty typical in, um, in church settings like mine. Um, Typically because, you know, they'll say that they're kind of sharing this information for the greater good of trying to, you know, win my soul back. Mm, yeah, but it was obviously not about you, was it? It was about using you as an example to frighten other people into submission. Oh, 100%. Yeah, I was for sure their kind of model sexual minority for um, a good several years. And so, yeah, I think that um, shedding that uh, role that I played for them was... Uh, I think they didn't know what to do with it. Cause my bed still shakes sometimes With the laughter of those angels To the only proof I can find For heaven, heaven, heaven 
the folks, we call them elders in, in the Presbyterian church, kind of formed this meeting and invited me and just kind of ambushed me with this kind of hard love tactic to set me back on track, um, which was honestly one of the most hurtful things um, in the whole ordeal. So this this hard love thing that you describe where, where they've ambushed you, they did this knowing that you were emotionally fragile, knowing that you were suicidal. Yes, yeah. And, and, they, and they did it anyway. Mm-hmm, yep. I, I actually received uh, an email that was kind of like making a threat. That person was threatening, threatening to out me to everyone and to my, um, my bosses at the time. I, I work for the NFL. Um, and so outing me in that context um, was very scary for me. I can't kind of like come out here or I'll lose my job. So I'm guessing at this point, the conversion therapy, the sense of keeping your same-sex attractions under control was, was faltering. Was there something specifically that really made that you realize that you, you couldn't control this? You know, I started working on a new project uh, under Courier called Human Becoming. And um, so it was like all of my other Courier work. These were songs that were written about other people's lives, other people's experiences, Gosh, one of those stories involved a dear friend of mine who I went through conversion therapy with in my early 20s. And he had dropped out and went on and affirmed himself much earlier than I did. But um, so so part of the tipping point for me was actually getting into his story, reading a letter that he had written me when he left conversion therapy, telling me that it was not tenable for him anymore and that it was damaging to his spirit. I sort of thought, you know, if I'm going to do this dear friend's experience justice, I have to be able to feel all the things that he was feeling. I have to actually try to get into this letter that he wrote me. And um, once I started feeling those things, I was like, shit, like I feel all of this pain as well. So there could be massive consequences with your church, but with the blackmailer, also with your job. I thought that it would mean, oh, this means I have to leave my faith behind if I'm going to affirm my sexuality. I can't hold both together. Yeah. I was also afraid that I would lose just about everyone in my life because my community, my, um, I guess, chosen family at that point mm -hmm. was all people in my church. And I did end up losing all of those people. Jumped in too early, why not go my worry away Until that black hole of pain became your hurting duh. That kind of baggage is collateral damage I'm sorry that the night's on Hey, this is John from the Song Surfing Podcast. Song Surfing is a playlist of independent music pulled from the far reaches of the internet. I've been searching for music on Bandcamp, SoundCloud, Spotify, Slaps, Audius, Instagram, and a few others. And in each episode of Song Surfing, I present some excellent tunes by a diverse group of interesting independent artists. So if you'd like to discover new artists and explore some music from around the world, then come Song Surfing with me. Song Surfing is available on all podcast apps, as well as Spotify and Amazon. Just at the road. 
So you're very much, Blake, at the edge of of an emotional and also of a of a life precipice. You you feel you're going to have to come out, and you've got this blackmailer who I understand forces you out. I I I was just like, you know what? This is this is not at all the timing that I wanted to do this in, but um, I'm I'm kind of ready to kind of like share with the world to kind of take the power away from someone who is going to do it for me. And was the reaction at the NFL as bad as you thought it might be? No. Um, I was very scared of that the first season um, after coming out. And um, I've encountered questions, um, but I have not encountered hostility. There was a, a year in which I, I sort of tried to rebuild my life and go through the rigmarole of... Um, a legal process of ending my marriage, which was a whole thing in and of itself, and um, trying to kind of find my people. In that process, I did find um, my current partner. And I would say where I'm at now is is kind of still in this in-between place because still kind of, it still feels like I'm kind of peeking out of the closet in many ways um, and uh, trying to find uh, just kind of fellow travelers on the journey and um a new kind of chosen family one of the scars of of perpetual self-hatred i think is that we feel unlovable or we feel unworthy of love so that when people do love us we often reject them you spent so much of your adult life in fact so much of your general life having religion tell you you are not worthy of love the way that you are yeah you've met someone who does love you the way that you are and you accept that and that's a really really good sign that's 70 80 percent of the work already done mm. yeah wow that's um that's a good way to put it yeah it, i think so much of it is about tearing apart the messaging that we've been given and the message that we so often get is yeah like you are not lovable you um are, for me, it was like you are a poison to the people around you. I, I won't let you take me down. You can't keep me in, and you can't take me down. And so, Blake, what relationship do you have now with your religion? I would say it's primarily. A, a posture of curiosity um, and a posture of um, admitting that I don't know. I think another thing that, that we do well as queer people is we uh, kind of break down the binary, right? We see things in more, we're able to more clearly see uh, kind of the spectrums and the myriad of different ways that we can experience life. And uh, so when thinking about some sort of religious identification or uh, the way that I think of spirituality now is I almost see it like I hold all of these past selves together within me. Some of them are Christian, some of them are not. Um, and they all kind of like sit around a table and we consult with each other and they're part of my experience and they're part of who I am, but they don't uh, describe the full breadth of who I am. Now, Blake, on your website, therealcourier.com, you have at the top of it a quote which reads, art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. 
What is that telling us about you? As a queer person who does tend to see things from the outside in so many ways, um, I would say a lot of my music over the last several years has taken on something of a of a um, protest quality to it. You know, we, we were talking about the messages that we receive about, um, you know, whether we're worthy, whether we're lovable. Um, I think the act of interrogating those messages through art is a way in which we call out those messages and we say, that message is destructive. And that's going to rattle some people who are comfortable with that message. But it's also going to comfort the people for whom the message was oppressive. Blake, you've spoken passionately on some of your social media posts. Specifically, you mentioned something called jogging whilst black, which as a white British man, it isn't really something that I'm that aware of. Could you explain to me a bit about what that is? You know, Tamir Rice, um, like a teenage boy who was just playing with a toy gun, um, gets shot by police. You know, whereas like, I mean, I remember um, we would take like airsoft guns, which were just these like guns that would shoot little like air pellets at, at people and, and play around with those when we were, when we were teenagers and we were never in danger of getting shot by police for it. Um, so when we, when we talk about, uh, like jogging while black or, you know, playing with a toy gun while black or in my partner's, uh, um, experience wearing a hoodie while black and being mistaken for, um, kind of like a convict on the loose. Um, All of those things are things that wouldn't get me in trouble for walking down the street with a hoodie or playing with a toy gun or going out for a jog. But um, the black experience in America is one in which there's a hypervigilance about doing any of those things because there could be negative consequences for them. I have a dear friend. um, His name's Jamichael. And uh, one of the singles that's out, it's called Recovery, is about his story um, being in uh, our church. We were both in together. How most Sundays, he was the only person of color in the congregation. And um, it was there was just a poignant moment that I remember that he kind of took membership vows at the church, which is just where you become a member. Everyone wanted to come shake his hand and tell him how welcome he was there. And then knowing that a few months later, 81% of the people in that congregation voted for a man to be president of the United States who did very little to hide his white supremacist ties, um, said racist things, um, and how their attitudes about that really didn't change for the last four years. Um, And uh, we made a a little music video um, of him just kind of running. We were sort of like, let's just make a video where a black man can go out for a jog and make it home. Blake, so much of your story is about your own oppression and self-hatred that you've had to go through. 
your music, your career visibility is helping to stop other people feel that. How, how does that make you feel? <laughs> um, it makes me feel closer to the younger versions of me that are disturbed. Um, it makes me feel like I can comfort those versions of me. You know, like the 18 year old kid who didn't want to play football, um, but who was kind of pushed into it by his dad and coming up alongside him and being like, you're okay. There's nothing wrong with you. Um, to like a 13 year old me who's, you know, singing worship songs with my eyes closed, just hoping that somehow my acts of service towards the church will kind of redeem me um, to kind of come up alongside that version of me and, and, and comfort that version of me and say, you're, you're good just as you are. Um, you belong. Do you want to run away? This Blake, you've already chatted briefly about the younger versions of yourself. Uh, what do you think your 15-year-old self would think of your music? <laughs> uh, 15-year-old Blake wanted to write worship songs, so 15-year-old Blake would probably be pretty appalled by the music that I'm putting out now. I, I think 15-year-old Blake would love the music that 22-year-old Blake was making, but 8-year-old Blake would really love the music that I'm making now. And I think I'm, I'm um, oh, I, I would more uh, probably like to hang out with eight-year-old Blake these <laughs> days than 15-year-old than Blake. So. You make it sound like there's like an eight-year-old boy version blossoming inside the adult you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, the, the more of that innocent joy and curiosity that, that um, eight-year-old Blake had is, has, has returned a little bit. And I think a lot of us can relate to that idea of harking back to this joyous, innocent child, you know, that we've had teenage years and adulthood where it almost feels like people bullied that joy out of us. Mm, yeah. I think for me, I almost bullied it out of myself. Um, but uh, yeah, so much of my journey with not just my sexuality, but my spirituality too, has been returning to a, a childlike version of myself. Now, one of my aims for this podcast is to introduce our subscribers to new queer music. And I think one of the best ways to do this is to have a gateway song that introduces people into your catalogue. So what would you say, do you think your gateway track would be? I would say right now, um, I would probably tell people to go listen to Conversion. That's going to kind of set the the trajectory for the the music that's coming um, but if they just want like a good feel good song, um, that kind of sums up what I've done so far, I would say, go listen to San Francisco. That seems to be the popular one these days. Westbound, far as he can make it, on denial, touchdown, looking for the darkest street on the bay, hoping to start a revolution, a revival, a few days in it. 
Blake Mundell, aka Courier. Thank you so much for joining me today. Dan, thank you so much. Um, this, it's been a pleasure talking to you, um, just even getting to know you. Um, and I really appreciate you reaching out and featuring my music, um, tell my story a little bit. Um, yeah, I really appreciate it. I really look forward to having you back on the show again soon when you've got some uh, gorgeous new material that I can't wait to hear. That would be awesome. I would love that. Blinking in a bubble, all that he has. Some days never saw the sun on streets so tender. And some nights they fell like fire, so kids going mad. If you've been affected by any of the issues in this episode, please consult the show notes for support links. Please do rate and review this podcast on your podcast provider. It'll really help other people find it. You can support the podcast by visiting patreon.com slash in the key of Q. Of course, it's always lovely to hear your thoughts and ideas and maybe future guests for the show. You can reach out on all the usual social media platforms or email me directly on dan at in the key of It'll be great to hear from you. Our theme music is by Paulie Nidu at unstoppablemonsters.com. Big thanks to Kajun Kantha and Murray Lang for their support in making this episode. I'm Dan Hall and this podcast is made at Pup Media Consultancy. See you next Tuesday. Next time on In the Key of Q. With the queer audience, I feel like we influence hip hop. Like we, we control that. That's Sad Boy, next time on In the Key of Q.